I was on my way to campus last night, and when you're ADD like I am and you've, liked, you've loved history, stuff will just kind of come out of the warehouse. And as I was driving to campus, I was thinking about the words of one of the most important American speeches. On August 28, 1963, a quarter million civil rights supporters gathered on the Capitol Mall. On the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, a young black pastor was going to stand and bring a sermon, really. Dr. Martin Luther King brought his I Have a Dream speech. In my mind yesterday on the way to the 4 o'clock service, I was scrolling through the I Have a Dream speech. And I came upon a particular section of the speech, and I thought, I've got to write this into my message. And although these words aren't typed into my talk, I scribbled them in last night, and I want to read them to you again. Dr. King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Honestly, I'm not sure how popular a preacher Dr. King would be today. Because in this sappy postmodern era that we live in, people are always saying, don't judge me by my character. And yet Dr. King said, that's exactly what we should be judged by. Judged by. Dr. Martin Luther King said he felt like his children should not be judged by the color of their skin. Prejudged. That's where we get prejudice. But that they should be judged by the content of their character. Well, we should be. Because every day in the world, people assess us. And we've been looking at this from the very beginning because, to be honest with you, I got to think about this series because a friend of mine who was an HR specialist, I mean, he was an HR rock star in the banking world, and then he switched over into the manufacturing sector, and he has worked with thousands and thousands of employees. And I asked him one time about a particular set of character traits, and I said, have you ever seen this particular package make it? And he said this to me, and if you were here in the first talk, you heard me give you the long version of this. But he said, if, if the problems are not attached to the character, you can fix anything. But on the other hand, he said, if the problems are attached to the person's character, the cure rate drops real low. Well, when I heard that, I thought it's incumbent upon me as a, as a pastor who talks to thousands of New Springers every week, and especially a, a lot of young adults and, and even young people who are not yet adults, I thought, it, it, well, if character is that important, then we need to do some teaching on character. I understand, though, there are a lot of people who feel like that character is formed in childhood, and once a person has gone past that, that character can't be changed. I want to tell you, if I really believed that character could not be changed, I would resign today. And tomorrow is my 31st anniversary here at New Spring Church. And I love this church. And I don't plan on resigning because I believe character can be changed. If Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and nothing is impossible with God, then I am convinced that someone who might be sitting out here that didn't get a whole lot of investment in character training when you were young or maybe you got it and didn't listen, I have to believe that it's possible for you and me to change for us to develop in this all-important area of character. Because Dr. Martin King said, it's appropriate for us to be judged by the content of our character. Well, we've been in this series. Now, this is the fourth week of the series. You need to know that when we started this series, we began with, I think, 20 character traits, and we decided to cull them down or, or bring them down to five, the five most important character traits. And already we've talked about the importance of being honest and the importance of being coachable, about being humble, being willing to listen, being able to put someone else's interest ahead of your own. And then last week, Jonathan talked to us about responsibility because my HR friend told me that the most cherished of all character traits in the corporate world or the business world or in any employment situation is to be able to assign someone to a task and for a boss to be able to turn her back and the person do the job 
that that person was assigned to do. Jonathan talked about that last week. Well, I want to talk to you about the most important character trait of all today. Before I do, you do remember, of course, that character is who you really are. You know, people are one thing on stage, there's something else off stage. And that's where we got the title of our series, Backstage. See, all of us live a life for public consumption, but character is who you are when you're 500 miles away from home and nobody's looking. Character is the person that you really are. And so today, I want to talk to you about the most important character trait. The only problem is, I'm going to have a hard time convincing you that this is the most important one. And it's not because you're not smart, you're very smart. It's just that when I tell you what this character trait is, you're going to say, well, that's, that's passive. I mean, if you grew up in church like I did, how many sermons did you hear on gratitude? Chances are you heard that sermon around Thanksgiving and the pastor's sermon added up to count your blessings. Hey, that's cool. But that, that doesn't even begin to tell us the importance of this all-important trait called gratitude. But I want to tell you something. Gratitude is the express elevator to the top. If you're a person of gratitude, you're on your way to the top. If, on the other hand, you're not a person of gratitude, and by the way, the opposite of gratitude isn't exactly ingratitude. The opposite of of gratitude is entitlement. If, on the other hand, you're a person who feels a sense of entitlement, No matter how legitimate you may feel that you're entitled to whatever it is that you have the sense of entitlement for, I love you very much, and I want to tell you, you're on your way exactly nowhere in life. There's a line between those people who rise to greatness, true greatness, true effectiveness. In other words, when they leave this planet, their life will will have made a difference. And that line is the difference between people who have a sense of gratitude and people who who have a sense of entitlement. Well, I've already suggested to you that I believe that gratitude is the most important character trait of all. Um, Why? Why is gratitude so powerful in our lives? Well, the best answer that I can come up with is this. Gratitude resets us to manufacturer settings. When God made us, if you think about how he made our first parents, Adam and Eve, he placed them in a perfect place. He placed them in a garden already fully, not only in bloom, but fully Uh, vested with fruit. He placed them in the perfect situation, gave the man the perfect woman, gave the woman the perfect man. That's the only time there ever has been a perfect man and a perfect woman. And he gave them to each other. What should the first human response have been to God? Gratitude, right? But Satan came along and what did he say to our first parents? He said to them, you are entitled to the one thing God told you you shouldn't have. You know, he came along and said, God has told you that you can't have the fruit from that one particular tree. You're entitled to it. Go ahead and enjoy it. And the rest is very, very tragic history, as you know. Gratitude resets us to manufacturer settings. In other words, when you and I experience gratitude, we go back briefly to that place where God created us in the first place. Our emotions are reset. Our thinking is reset. Let me just say this. If I said to you this morning that the difference between success and failure is having a positive attitude versus a negative attitude, then chances are a lot of you would buy into that because you say, well, I've heard that in many manifestations at corporate seminars and in books and so on and so forth. But here's the thing that you and I need to understand. Positive and negative mental attitudes are not causal. They don't cause success. Positive and mental attitudes are resultant 
the resultant of something more fundamental. Here is the thing. If you're a grateful person, it is impossible for you to be negative. If you are an entitled person or a person who feels a sense of entitlement, it is impossible for you to be positive. So you see what I'm saying? This is the reason why gratitude is so important is it brings us back to manufacturer settings. Now, here's the thing. That's all theology, and that's all existential. You know this already, though, from a practical standpoint, I'm guessing. You ever give up, get up in the morning and you're having a really bad day? It's like everything is going bad, and you're mad at this person, you're mad at that person, and you can't believe this person said this, and you can't believe your husband did that, and you're like facing the world, and you're just miserable about everything, and you're thinking, I wish I could just go back to bed. And then out of nowhere, you have a thought about something good that happened in your life. Maybe like me, there was a moment where your life, you you could have been killed and God spared your life. And you think about it for a moment and all of a sudden, all that anger melts away because you now are grateful for what happened in your life. It, It is the juxtaposition of what you were grateful for has reset your mind to manufacturer settings. Now, there are a lot of things in my life that can do this, but one, to, I guess one of the most recent is um, 10 years ago, I was on my way back from Texas. I had been conducting a conference, and I wanted to get back to Wichita as early as I possibly could. So I started at like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I, I usually bought Honda Accords, but I'd gotten out of the will of God and bought a Toyota. I, <laughs> well, it really wasn't a Toyota, to be honest with you. It was a Scion TC. I just, it was just a cool little coupe, and it went over there, and it looked like it needed me, so I, I bought it. So I'm, I'm driving that back to Wichita, and I'm a little bit over the speed limit, let's just say, because I'm in a hurry to get back. And, and I remember when I crossed the Oklahoma border, Mary Alice called me. She says, is it raining? I said, no, it's dry as a bone. The moment I said that, it started raining. It rained on me all the way through Oklahoma. Then I got into Kansas, and then the wind changed. And all of a sudden, the wind started coming very strong. And just as I was at mile marker 38 over here on the, on the Kansas, on I-35, I was coming around to Bend, and the wind caught the back end of my car, and the back wheels of my car just turned loose. And all of a sudden, I have turned around, and I'm going back up I-35 backward at 73 miles an hour. And you know what the first thing I thought was? I'm going to hit something really hard. Hey, that's how a lot of people get killed. But you know, it was as if an angel had his hand on the top of my car because my car just eased over into the concrete median and just gradually slowed down. Now, it turned the right side of my car into hamburger, but it just slowed me down, didn't even fire the airbags. And and here I am going back up, looking now at the traffic, and there's a whole lot of traffic, but it's like it's held back about a half mile. I unbuckled my seatbelt, walked over to the side of the road and called 911. Now I want to tell you something. When I'm having a bad day, God brings that to my mind and I'm thinking, you know what? I might not even be having this day at all. I might be having this day in a very different physical condition than I'm in right now. You see what I'm saying? I'm just saying that when we experience gratitude, it resets us to manufacturer's specifications and settings. And that is why it's so powerful. And it isn't just the Bible. Wall Street Journal And we all know everything in the Wall Street Journal is true, right? (laughs) I like the WSJ. Wall Street Journal did a 10-year study on the benefits of gratitude for adults. And here's what they found. Adults who are grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, and more happiness. They're less likely to be depressed. I'm not surprised at this one. They're less likely to be envious 
or greedy, less likely to be substance addicts. They sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, and hear this one, they have less viral infections. Now, other, other studies and surveys have been conducted, and this one was conducted on kids who feel grateful. And it was determined they're less materialistic, they get better grades, they set higher goals, they have fewer stomach aches and fewer headaches. So it isn't just the Bible. I mean, every, everyone who takes a look at this seriously determines that people who are grateful have better lives than people who have a sense of entitlement. Okay, let's get serious for a moment. What does it mean to be grateful in a practical sense? What does gratitude actually mean? I mean, is it just sending thank you cards to people who have helped you? Is it just saying, God, thank you, which is important? All those things are important. What is real gratitude? Well, let me, let me approach it this way. Um, when I was in high school, two of my friends got new cars. Not me. I had an eight-year-old Ford. But I had a friend named Robert, and um, his family bought a new car for him. Now, they had deep pockets, and they bought a sports car for him, and they bought the kind of car the high schoolers don't get. And it had to be special ordered. And every day, Robert would bring the brochure up to school, and he would show us the car he was going to get and all the factory specifications and all the factory equipment that was going to be on it. And then this was going to be added by the dealer. And so every day, he would bring it and show it to us. And the rest of us, you know, we were just salivating, looking at what, we, what you would call a muscle car today. But, I mean, it was like a really, really expensive car. I had another friend named Sonny Smith. Now, Sonny was one of those kinds of kids, I think he started working when he was one and a half. And Sonny, you know, he was the kind of kid that saved everything he ever had. His, Sonny was just an interesting kid. You know, he, he, when, he was, when he was in junior high school, he fell in love with a girl at, at our middle school. And dog, body, if he didn't marry her, they're still married and have, family, have kids and grandkids. He got certified for the post office when he was a senior in high school. And I think he's still working for the post office. Just that kind of person makes that kind of commitment. And Sonny bought, I mean, he saved up his money and paid cash for an economy car. Now, six months later, um, Robert had just mistreated his car. It was dented and scuffed and dirty and dirty inside and dirty outside. He'd run it over rough terrain and the hubcaps had all come off. I mean, it would look like a junker six months after he got it. On the other hand, you could walk up to Sonny's car in the high school parking lot and see yourself in it. I mean, he, I mean, he polished that car and cleaned that car, and God forbid that anybody should touch it. Now, why? You know the answer to that. You would say, well, the first guy you talked about didn't appreciate his car because he was given it. Whereas Sonny, on the other hand, appreciated his car because he earned it, and he had a sense of the value of it. Oh, we know that. But gratitude puts both of those together. See, the word, I'll get to that in a second. The word appreciate comes from the Latin. The etymology of appreciate means, well, if, you're, if you've been buying a house recently, you know, the banker or the real estate agent will tell you before you can get approved for this particular house, you have to have an what? Appraisal, Right. And that's what appreciate comes from. It comes from the same basis. Appreciate means to appraise and to feel the sense of value. So gratitude merges the gift and that feeling that Sonny had, understanding the value of the car that he had 
sacrifice in order to buy. Gratitude says, I sense the value of the gift plus I value the love behind the person who gave me the gift. That's what gratitude is. Gratitude attempts to feel the value of the gift plus the love of the giver. One of my favorite verses on gratitude in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 14 and 15. At the end of verse 14, the Bible talks about the overflowing grace that God has given to us. Does anybody feel that today? You won't if you're entitled. If you feel like you're entitled, you won't feel that today. My heart goes out to you. But if, on the other hand, you feel the overflowing grace of God, it's a magnificent thing. God has been so good to me. I mean, he saved my wicked soul. I can't get, you know, I'll be 60 years old this year, and I cannot get myself straightened out. But God loves me anyway. And even though I should go to hell, he has forgiven me and made me clean. And he gave me the greatest wife in the world and three most awesome sons. And he gave me three daughter-in-laws that are better than all three of my sons. <laughs> None of my sons deserves the, deserve the wives they got. I have perfect grandchildren. <laughs> and two on the way. And tomorrow I'll be at New Spring 31 years. I, I've got to live the dream. I get to be your pastor. And daily, God loads me down with benefits. And and do I have issues? Yeah, I have issues. But I far more rather think about the load of benefits that overflow to me. Do you feel that in your life today? Well, look at what the Bible says. The overflowing grace that God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. In other words, Jesus is too wonderful for words. Well, if you felt that today when you worshiped, it made a difference in how you worshiped. You know, if you just kind of like, well, I'm going to get through this, and they're going to sing some songs. I'm going to hear Mark give a little talk, and I guess we'll go home and eat. (laughs) Well, if you're entitled, I don't blame you. That's how I'd worship. But if God has overflowed benefits into your life, it it made a difference in how you worshiped. That breath you just took, that's one of 23,000 you'll take today. Do you have one for God? Do you have one that says, God, thank you for loving me? Jesus, thank you for saving me. God, thank you for that time you spared my life. God, thank you for that dark hole that you pulled me out of when I couldn't get my thinking right. Do you have a breath for God? Okay. I got 16 minutes and five seconds according to that clock. We're going counterculture today, okay, because I know that we live in a sense of entitlement. I was, I, was, yeah, I shouldn't be on Facebook, but I was on my wife's Facebook page, and somebody had put a post up there that showed the juxtaposition of our founding leaders in a protest today, and the picture of the founding leaders said, give me liberty or give me death, and the one over the protester said, give me free stuff or I'll start a riot, you know, <laughs> so I, I, I know how people think today. And, and even commercials, when you watch commercials on television, it'll be like, you deserve this. So I understand, we're going counterculture today. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this world is on its way, it's passing away. And those who do the will of the Lord last forever. So I want to talk about that. Okay, here's the first of three important thoughts I want to give you about gratitude. And here's the first one. Gratitude isn't connected to circumstances. 
If you're the average American, you're, you would be thinking something like this. If I had X, I would be thankful. I've got a nice car, but if I had a faster car. I've got a nice house, but if I had a bigger house, or if I had a, if I had a house in, in, at the, you know, if I had a condo at the ocean, I would be happy. Gratitude is connected to circumstances. The United States of America is the most blessed nation in the world. We have so much stuff. In fact, we are so rich that we think that yesterday's luxuries are today's necessities. I was just looking back in history. In 1900, less than 10%, less than 10% of Americans owned a stove or had access to electricity or telephone. In 1915, less than 10% of Americans owned a car. In, less than, in 1930, less than 10% of Americans owned a refrigerator or a clothes washer. Now think about that. Less than 10% had a refrigerator or a machine to wash their clothes. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or air conditioning. In 1960, I was alive then, less than 10% of Americans had a dishwasher or color TV. In 1975, I was in college, less than 10% of Americans had a microwave oven. And in 1990, I was already pastor of New Spring Church. In 1990, less than 10% of, of Americans had cell phones or access to the internet. And yet today, over 90% of Americans have all this stuff. And yet, when Gallup studied the nations of the world in regard to how happy they were, Americans were 33rd on the list of the most happy nations. We have more stuff than any other nation in the world, and yet we're 33rd on the list of being happy. Seven of the top 10 nations are in Latin America, and they're some of the poorer nations of the world. Many of them have to deal with drug cartels and all kinds of violence, and yet seven of the 10 happiest nations in the world are in Latin America, and we're 33rd on the list. Having more doesn't equal gratitude. In fact, one of the strangest studies that I went, looked at in looking for this message is um, there was research that looked at lottery winners and by contradistinction, people who have been in accidents and suffered paralysis as a result. Now, that's quite a difference, right? Lottery winners paralyze people who've been in accidents. Well, of course, when they were polled to find out how they looked at the initial experience, lottery winners thought it was a good thing that they won the lottery. It made them happy. And people who were injured in automobile accidents, suffered paralysis, thought it was a bad thing, and they were unhappy about that. But when the analysis went past that point and began to look at their everyday lives, it was amazing to discover that on a day-to-day -day basis, just basic things in life, that the people who had been in automobile accidents and suffered paralysis were happier about day-to-day -day things than people who won the lottery. And here's the one that got me the most. People who had been paralyzed in an accident viewed shopping as something that made them more happy than people who won the lottery. And let me just go a step further because somebody could be here and you would say, well, Mark, I really get this thing that things don't make you happy, but I'm not looking at something material. I could feel grateful if my husband would just straighten up. I could feel grateful if my kids would just behave differently. I could be grateful if, if people would just treat me nicely at work. Well, those are much more noble pursuits. I will hand you that, but I will tell you those are things that will not make you grateful. You're either a grateful person or you're not. I'm either a grateful person or I'm a person with a sense of entitlement. 
It has nothing to do with my circumstances or situation in life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says, give thanks no matter what happens. God wants you to thank him because you believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, God is saying, Mark, because you have Jesus in your life and because you have all the promises of God, you need to be thankful not for everything, but in everything. To me, one of the most interesting nations in the world is Nigeria. Maybe because I've had the privilege of meeting some Nigerian Christians. See, Nigeria is divided. I mean, not, not officially, but it's divided between the radical Islamic North and the sub-Saharan Christian South. And the radical Islamic extremists in the North are perhaps the most virulent of all, the Boko Haram. If you've heard any of the stories, they're just... Horrific. I was in Houston and I met a lady who was saved, rescued because the Boko Haram had attacked her, attacked her village and her pastor. She was on her way across a bridge to serve in her church that day and her pastor waved her and told her to go back. And she didn't know why, but later I found out and Boko Haram killed everybody in her village. And she came to the United States, was in Houston, and just had a glowing. Isn't it cool how you meet Christians all over the world? But anyway... There, there's a town called Jos that's just like right on the line between the Muslim North and the Christian South. And the Boko Haram came into this town and basically they, in order to terrorize Christians, they burned most of the town. They burned the church down. They burned the pastor's home. They burned a lot of the members' home. And it was the Sunday week after the Boko Haram had attacked the village of Jos. And the pastor of the little Baptist church there, whose name was Sunday Gomno, was standing up to give his message, and he opened up with thanksgiving. And he said, first of all, I am thankful that our people didn't kill anybody. You see, what happened was when the Boko Haram attacked their village, because it was on the line, the village of Jos had both Christians and Muslims living there. And some who were attacked from, by the Boko Haram, they wanted to take it out on the Muslims who lived in the village. And some of the people in this church had actually gone to protect their Muslim their Muslim friends in the city. And, and the Muslims had come forward to thank Pastor Sunday Gomna because his people had protected them. And he said, first of all, I'm thankful that our people didn't kill anybody. And then he said, secondly, I'm thankful that our church didn't burn. Well, they were meeting in a mud hut, a little community hut a mile away from the church. And people looking at each other like, well, of course our church burned. And he went on and said, since none of us were burned alive, they just burned our building. And then he said, I'm thankful that my house burned. Because he said, if my house hadn't burned, how would I know how to minister to those of you whose houses burned? Entitlement is so in the groundwater of our American thinking. What I've just said in the last five minutes, for most of us, I might as well have been speaking in Chinese. Because most of us don't know anything about that kind of gratitude. Gratitude doesn't have anything to do with circumstances. Now, here's the second thing I want to share with you. Entitlement is ugly. It'll make you miserable. <laughs> you know, in the Bible, sometimes we get a snapshot of what we're like when we're in the wrong place. You ever get a picture of yourself? I mean, like you're just losing it and somebody get a picture of you during that time? You're like, is that me? <laughs> is that what I look like? 
Well, what we're going to do right now is we're going to see what we look like when we get entitled. I want to take you to the story of the prodigal son, but I'm not going to go to the place where we talk about most of the time. You know, of course, the story is about a, a father who has two sons, and he's well-to-do, and the younger son is basically saying, hey, I don't want to wait till you die. Give me my inheritance now. And so the father divides his inheritance with both kids, and the older son who stays there gets two-thirds, and the younger kid gets a third of the entire estate. And so he turns into cold cash and goes as far as he, away as he can, and he blows up his life on prostitutes, drugs, parties, liquor, and so on and so forth. He gets in trouble, loses everything. They give him a job feeding hogs, and he comes to his senses, and he says, I'm going to go back and ask my dad if he'll hire me. Now, that's where we spend most of the story. You know the story. He goes home, and he's going to ask his dad for a job, but his dad, who's a representative of God, is so glad to see his son come back. He hugs him and, you know, puts the robe on his shoulders and puts a family crest on his hand and they kill the fatted calf and they have a barbecue and big party. Well, that's where we're going to pick up the story because the older son, who never left home, comes from the field and he hears a party going on and he asks, well, what in the world is this noise that I'm hearing? Let's pick it up right there. He heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back. Oh, he said, my dad's going to kick his out of here. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. Older brother, are you kidding me? We're celebrating because my good-for-nothing, lousy, waste-his-life brother-in-law went, a brother went and wasted his stuff and comes back home, and we're celebrating that. I'm not going to that party. And he went out and he launched a protest rally with one person. <laughs> He's got his sign. Well, what's on his sign? You know, what's on our sign when we're protesting we're entitled? What's on our sign? Let's read. His dad came out and begged him, come on, son, please come on in. There's a big party going on. Man, there's great barbecue and we're all having a good time in there. Come on in. No, I'm not going to come in. And look at what he said. Here's what the boy said. All these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. Hey, this is just free. Always watch for people who use the word always and never. Because a lot of times they're lying. I always do the right thing. Or you never do this. Okay, just watch those people. Because this is what this guy's saying. All these years I've slaved for you, and I never once disobeyed you. You believe that? I don't think anybody's that good. Well, anyway, let's read on. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. But he didn't have that many friends. You never gave me even one young goat. And yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fat and calf. You know what's weird? Is that there are some of you watching me right now that are saying, I think the older brother makes sense. Do you want to know why you do? This kid is walking around with a sign that has two things on it. The first line says, I deserve, I deserve it, and you didn't give it to me. I deserve it, and you didn't give it to me. I'm entitled. I deserve it. 
I've been a good husband to you. I, I deserve it, and you don't give me. I've been a good wife. I deserve it, and you don't give it to me. All the rest of the kids in my class have it. I deserve it. You didn't give it to me. I worked harder than the person who got the promotion, and she got the promotion. I deserve it, and you didn't give it to me. Or I have issues, and I'm an American citizen, and I deserve it. You didn't give it to me. Well, in our candor, maybe there is some legitimacy there. Maybe when you say that you've been a good husband, you have been a good husband. Maybe when you say you've been a good wife, you've been a good wife. Maybe, you know, maybe everybody else in your class does have it. But here's the question I want to ask you. Even if there's some legitimacy to your claim, do you want to be miserable? Because it is impossible to be entitled or have a sense of entitlement and be happy. You can't. I mean, look at this kid. I mean, there's a, you know, you, you know what's strange about this? You know the only person this kid really hurt? I mean, other than the father who wanted him to be there? He hurt himself. He missed a party. You think inside the party where they're all having a good time and eating barbecue, you think they're worried about the kid outside with the protest sign? I assure you, they don't even know he's alive. I don't know why I feel prompted to say this, but I'm talking to somebody who's been bitter for years, angry at somebody, and you live your life in misery because you're bitter against them, and that person doesn't even know you're angry at him. He's sleeping at night. This and I'm through. Here's the third thing. Number one, remember, gratitude doesn't have anything to do with your circumstances. Number two, entitlement will make you ugly, or it is ugly and it'll make you miserable. Here's the third thing. And it's quiet in here because I know I'm going counterculture. This isn't America 2016, but this is where life, this is where success is. Here's the third thing. The key to a life of gratitude is faith that God is at work. Because here's, what, here's what's interesting. People will not treat you right sometimes. I mean, you are an imperfect person dealing with imperfect people. So if, if, if you're going to go around in life, like Jonathan talked about last week, expecting justice, you're going to walk around miserable. But here, as a Christ follower, you can say, wait a minute. I'm not depending upon this person for my advancement. I'm not, I'm not depending on this person for my sense of well-being. By the way, anytime you're depending on someone else for your sense of well-being, you're giving that person way too much power. Amen. But as a Christ follower, the Bible tells me that in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good, uh, plans to, uh, to help you and, and prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You see, that's, that's why I don't have to walk around with a sign that says, I, you owe it to me and you didn't give it to me. Uh, I've got nine seconds according to that sign. Can I go into overtime just a little bit? I want to read a story to you, and I'll read it fast if you'll listen fast, because when I look at the Bible, to me, the, 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 the distinction between entitlement and gratitude is in one particular story. So let me read it, and I, I will promise you, I will try to read it real fast. Here's the back story. <laughs> you guys know me, don't you? Jesus has invited, been invited over to dinner. There's this, like, elite religious guy. He's entitled. He does everything right. 
And he's invited Jesus over to dinner. But I need to let you know, he's not inviting Jesus over to give him props. He's inviting Jesus over basically to show him that he's not really, he's sort of like getting his entry into the ultra elite religious. And if he'll play by the rules, maybe he'll advance. Okay, let's read. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Let's stop it right there. Uh, There's a woman in this town, and she's a bad girl, um, a really bad girl. In fact, the interesting thing about the Greek, it says that she had devoted her life to sin. You ever like burn a candle, a votive candle? That's the root word. She'd like burned a candle to sin <laughs> in her life. And I, nothing she hadn't done, I'm sure, lots of times with lots of people. But she'd accepted Jesus. I mean, she'd gotten saved. She was happy. And she hears that these ultra good people have invited Jesus to dinner. And here is what she's thinking. She's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch good people do for Jesus what I would like to do. I, I can't get close to him, but I'm going to do for him. I'm going to watch them do for him what I would like to do. See, back in those days, I didn't know this until I was reading this this week, but when there was this big, elegant dinner party that the whole town, the, the elite were going to go uh, eat, they would like let people from the town walk in and sit along the edges and watch this kind of like a prehistoric reality show. Yeah. And, and so this woman went in to just sort of watch. She's going to watch them treat him. Well, she's going to watch. She just wants to vicariously see Jesus be treated like she would like to treat him. But to her amazement and horror, when Jesus comes in, nobody washes his feet. I've taught you this before, that when there was a party like this, that they would, a guest of honor, they would put a cake of fragrance on his head. They would make over him or her to show that this person was very special. They didn't put any fragrance on Jesus. They didn't even put him at the head table. They put him way down at the end. She is sickened that they're treating Jesus like this. So quickly she runs back to her house and she gets a flask of perfume. And let's pick it up right there. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. I was reading this this week. These are not my words. It says a gift for a king. It was worth a year's salary. She might have got it by being bad. We don't know, but she just had this. And she stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on his feet. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, just in his head, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Got to be one of the funniest lines in the Bible. This guy's like, this guy can't be worth anything. He doesn't even know what kind of woman this is. Jesus knew he was saying that in his head. So Jesus answered his thoughts. And he said, Simon, I've got something I want to say to you. Well, of course, he doesn't know that Jesus can read his mind. He thinks that Jesus is going to give him some love for inviting him over to his house. And so he says to Jesus, well, go ahead, teacher. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned two people some money, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. 
Who do you suppose loved him more? Well, Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, said Jesus. And then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, oh, look at, oh, I wish I had 20 more minutes. He said, Simon, look at her. See, Simon never looked at her. He's entitled. He's, he's good. He didn't have anything to do with her. He doesn't even really see her. Jesus said, Simon, I want you to look at her. Aren't you glad that when people just see our failures and inadequacies and maybe even the crazy things we've done in the past, aren't you glad Jesus can look through that fog and see us the way he wants to see us? Jesus said, Simon, look at her. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins... And they are many have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little, oh, do you realize the coldness, the ice, the terror in that statement? He didn't say a person who has sinned little. He said a person who has been forgiven little. See, Simon's a bigger sinner than this woman ever dreamed of being. He's so full of pride and self-righteousness and entitlement and yet Jesus is saying to him, you know what? Your sins are still with you. Her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person who loves Jesus greatly because you have a sense of the grace, the overflowing grace that God has given us in our lives? Or do you want to be Simon, the entitled Pharisee, who says, I owe it, give it to me. Uh, there's a pastor named H.B. Charles who pastors in uh, Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. And he's a great preacher. I have, I've never met him. We both preached in Georgia and like two ships passing in the night last year. And I really wanted to meet him. Just tremendous African-American pastor. But he tells a story. He said they have a woman in their church in Jacksonville. And every time they have a prayer meeting, she just prays the same prayer. Just one sentence. She just prays, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And every time it's her prayer to pray, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And <laughs> HB said it got to the place where even the kids would laugh when it was her turn to pray because they knew you know, she's going to pray, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I don't know if any of you have ever done any time in a Baptist church. <laughs> I've done some. Somebody went to her and asked her, why do you pray that same prayer all the time? She said, well, I live in a dangerous neighborhood. And at night we can hear the bullets whizzing by the house. Sometimes they ping off the side of the house and we hear them as they go by the windows. And she said, I lay in the floor and I hold on to my baby. And I say, oh, Lord. And she said, when I get up in the morning and we're okay, I say, thank you, Jesus. Said, I go to the bus stop in the morning and I put my baby on the bus and I think about all the bad things that could happen to a six-year-old girl and it scares me to death and I just cry out, oh, Lord. And at 3 o'clock when she gets off the bus and she's safe, I say, thank you, Jesus. And she said, when I come to worship, 
All I know to do is to put together the only two prayers I know and pray, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. It impresses me that she knows a lot more about prayer than I do. Is there anybody here today who would pray that prayer, oh, Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.